Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is music marketing and artist development guru, Jay Warsinski. First of all, I don't know if you know, but more and more A&R departments, especially in all the major labels, are beginning to use artificial intelligence in finding the next hit, the next big artist. Yeah, they're employing machine learning for A&R, and now all of the major record labels are buying up companies that specialize in this. For instance, Universal bought a company called Future Hit, Warner's bought Soda Tone, and what they're trying to do is make A&R sort of future-proof. The idea is that you can get machine learning to audition 100,000 songs a year instead of maybe the typical thousand a year that an A&R person might do. And it goes beyond record labels as well. For instance, Amazon has hit prediction technology. And there's a company called HitLab that predicts potential success of new and unknown songs and then recommends playlists. Now, this is being used a lot by producers so they can go fine-tune their songs before they're released. What it does is it looks at 83 different data points to find out if a song will be a hit or catch on. Some think this is going to transform the record business. Others think it's downright creepy. I'm somewhere in the middle. I believe it's a tool, and AI is more and more a part of our everyday lives, whether we know it or not. So it would kind of be foolish to overlook this as part of a record company toolkit. But what makes it interesting is the fact that now you can't really rely on the taste of an A&R person because decisions may be beyond that A&R person or the A&R committee, for better or for worse. So it's more and more likely the machine is going to determine whether your song is a hit or not. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now, I saw a company at NAM that has subwoofer sneakers. Yeah, it's called Drop Labs, and in fact, the sneakers are the EP01 subwoofer sneakers. They connect via Bluetooth to your phone or to any Bluetooth device, but you could actually plug directly into them if you want. Imagine that, having cables coming out of your sneakers. These go for $449, and you might think, like I did at first, well, this is kind of strange, but it's not. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of artists that are using these. Yeah, I know you're thinking, why? Well, if an artist is using in-ears, sometimes they're just not getting the low end the way they are with the set of floor monitors. And in fact, when you have subwoofer sneakers, you can feel the bass. And sometimes that's all you need. This is a property called proprioception, sometimes called 
kinesthesia. Many think this is the sixth sense. It's a sense of self-movement. It's, for instance, knowing whether your feet are on soft grass or hard cement or throwing a ball without looking at your arm. That's all part of the same thing. This isn't brand new. We can go back 10 or 15 years, maybe even longer, and there was something called the base shaker. It's still around, and this is something that you connect to your chair. And the idea being that when you feel the vibrations, you think the low end, you think the bass is louder than it actually is. This is actually very successful with drummers. Drummers generally have a hard time hearing their kick drum. And when you connect the kick up to a bass shaker that's connected to their drum throne, it doesn't matter whether it's live or in the studio, all of a sudden they get the sensation of the kick being louder than it is. So it's pretty interesting that now we have sneakers that will do the same thing. Drop Labs EP01, $449, and yes, they have all sorts of different sizes. I don't know if they have latency or not, and that would be something that would be really important, I think, especially on the low end. But they appear to work pretty well, so if you're not getting enough bass on stage or in the studio, maybe this is the way to go. My guest today is Jay Warsinski, who's been in music marketing, promotion, and artist development for over 40 years. Jay helped launch the music for celebrated artists like U2, NWA, ACDC, Dr. Dre, Metallica, Guns N' Roses, Eminem, and the list goes on and on. You won't believe all the huge artists that Jay's worked with. Jay's company, Indie Power, works with artists on all levels with distribution, marketing, and promotion. He's also the founder of the Indie Entertainment Summit. It happens every year in the NoHo Arts District of North Hollywood. During the interview, we spoke about the difference between music promotion now and in the 80s, the ups and downs of playlist promotion, what makes a successful artist, and much more. I spoke with Jay via phone from his office in Los Angeles. Let's go back to the beginning, to when you started in the business. Where are you from, first of all? Well, that's a good question. Um, my father was in the Air Force, so I was born in Montana, moved to the East Coast, and started kindergarten. And then when I saw the Beatles and Ed Sullivan one Sunday night, about a month later, my family moved to England. So the birth of the British invasion, I started school, first, second, third grade, and my father got a, a month's vacation saved up every summer. And my parents and two sisters and I, uh, would tour all over Europe in a Volkswagen camper. So I got to know Spain and Italy and Germany and Denmark and Sweden and Norway and all that. But we lived right um, in the Cambridge area of the U.K., which is about 100 miles north of London. So it was literally during the birth of the Beatles and James Bond movies and the Rolling Stones and, and all that. So... Um, when I moved back to the States, I lived in Texas for a good stretch, four years, and um, started playing professionally guitar at a very early age. I was, I was still, you know, super, super young. But, um, and then I moved to Dayton, Ohio, and that's where I, I kind of went from playing in the parties to putting on the parties. And then I graduated high school for one year in Panama, Central America. Jeez. So I got to see all parts of the U.S., Europe. Latin America, I got a chance to tour down through uh, Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, and then I went to college on the Canadian border. 
just south of Vancouver at Western Washington University, and that was 76 to 80. So I was heavily involved with the birth of punk rock and new wave and alternative music, befriending people like Miles Copeland, who brought the police and Sting through, and just the birth of so much great stuff. I, I became like the concert promoter for my university and music director for the campus station. And rather than just play records in my shift, I said I was influenced by Jim Ladd and his show Interview. I used to pick that up on Seattle radio once a week. And I said, no, I'm going to go out and interview all these artists that come through Seattle and Vancouver. And, you know, with no budget, no experience, just got a little tiny cassette, you know, recorder. And, and went about knocking on doors and ended up interviewing, which a lot of them became some of the biggest acts in the world, like the police and Kiss and Hart and Judas Priest and, you know, Black Sabbath. And, I mean, you name it. It was such a fertile time, 76 to 80. And that's, that's the year I moved to L.A. So I'm celebrating 40 years here in L.A. But hitting the ground running, I've been, you know, that that's my forte. I went from playing in the bands to actually promoting the artists, helping grow the the buzz and the artist, you know, repertoire. So that's what I've been doing ever since. You mentioned about spending a great deal of your formative years in the UK just when things yeah. were breaking over there and yeah. then coming back to Texas and then going to Panama and near Canada. What did you find that was similar? I, I would imagine that there was a, a really big disconnect coming from the UK and then finally, you know, going to the, you know what, what's interesting is I'd say the common ground is top 40 music because I used to watch top of the pops every week. And you know, of course that, that show lasted for decades in the UK and it broke so many artists because they had BBC radio and BBC television and they had top of the pops and I mean, I was seeing everybody from Beatles and Stones to Mark Bolan and Tom Jones and, I mean, you name it. They were all coming out of coming out of England. Well, I guess Mark Bolan wasn't quite that early, but a lot of stuff like that, Badfinger and a lot of stuff related to the Beatles and Stones and Dave Clark Five and, you know, all the, all the British stuff. And listening to the Beatles, you know, on my little um, home radio, um, it was it was such a fertile time. So even when I moved back to the States, I don't care if I was in Texas, Ohio, or Panama, they had Armed Forces Radio down there. Top 40 radio is really the same all over the world. And so much of it is either from the U.S. or the U.K. Every time I interview a U.K. artist, I remind them how, you know, we go back and forth over the pond. You know, we, you guys were influenced by the American blues and R&B artists. And we were influenced by the British invasion. And then you were influenced by, you know, the American rock and rollers. And then we're influenced by the postmodern alternative British guy. It just keeps going back and forth. So between the U.S. and the U.K., I think we're responsible for 95% of the hits in the world, if not more. There's so much I want to get to with you. But now that you mentioned that, let's just go on a tangent for a little bit. Yeah. I certainly agree with you that I can remember being in Paris and walking down the street and hearing what I just heard on the radio in the United States, or no matter where you went at one point in time. But I travel an awful lot all over the world these days. That's no longer the case. 
As a matter of fact, what you hear more than anything is indigenous music that's very influenced by what we did, but you no longer hear the top 40 hits like you did once upon a time. Have you noticed that? Well, yeah, it's a mix. Well, especially in France, they they don't want to be Americanized as much, so they, they um, try and promote as many French artists. And, of course, Germany has their artists, but I would say still in Germany... Um, a lot of the top hip-hop and rock and pop artists, you know, from America, boom over there. And in France, some of the top Americans and top U.K. artists, boom, you know. Uh, going, going to meet them for, for decades, I used to watch their video shows, and I would see, you know, these American and British artists, you know, like the Killers or Muse or, you know, they, they would have some kind of weird choices sometimes, like, wow, that, that band is big in France. They're not even big in their own home country that much. You know, it was that age-old Hendrix and Chrissy Hind and everybody had to go to England to break, and they were from America. I, I think all the countries try to follow, you know, what we do, and there's more and more, I guess, um, corporations and stuff over there that try and promote the indigenous music. But still, I think when you look at the Grammys, you know, most, most of the artists, you know, are, are still from the U.S. and the U.K. I mean, we lead the way. It's just probably not quite as much, especially with streaming. I mean, you have such a long tail now. Yeah. People can listen to anything they want. They're not dependent on BBC radio or government-run television. Right, right, right. Okay, so it's 1980 and you move to Los Angeles. Then what happens? Well, again, I, I, I was already promoting artists running radio, running concerts and all that in the Pacific Northwest. So a lot of the artists that I was starting to help and break, like the police and the clash and, you know, all of these bands, I come down to LA and this was the epicenter, A and M records and IRS records and MCA and Warner Brothers and everything. So I immediately got continued in the promotion business. I've always done media, always done interviews, but I, I, I was in the streets promoting in the clubs, promoting in the stores. You know, retail was real big back then. You know, radio was very specific. But I promote to college radio. I promote to retail, promote to underground mom-and-pop stores, and promote to, you know, the underground, you know, media. Back then we had fanzines, you know, were real big. You know, when we tell people at, at NAM that a lot of us broke some of your favorite artists with no cell phones, no computers, and no social media, I mean, it boggles their mind. Yeah. They're like, how, how do you even begin? Where, where, would you start knocking on doors or what? <laughs> That's true, though, but, you know, there's no other choice. You just use what you had at that point, and it's the same thing here. You know, we, just like today, we're not dependent on the Internet. It's just one of the tools. We still have to go out to physical clubs and physical retail or physical locations where people wear physical clothes and buy physical goods and drive physical cars, you know? So, you know, to us, we always try and tell people, you know, create a, a wide, a wide net, you know, and, and give the people what they want, physical, digital, streaming, sales, live shows, merch, you know, because if it's a business of pennies, you have to have all those streams working to make your dollars. Yeah. If you're just dependent on streaming, it's either going to be a windfall or, or um, you know, a crash landing. <laughs> right. So when did Indie Power come about? 
Well, you know, it's, it's really been an evolution of what I've done for these 40 years in L.A. I just rebranded it about 15 years ago as Indie Power because I realized, wow, you know, all these major labels are buying each other up. Pretty soon it's going to be about two or three majors, and there's going to be more and more tools, you know, coming off of the Warp Tour, and, you know, the Internet was beginning, and we, we, we saw that, it was no longer going to be owned and controlled and dominated by the major labels anymore. So I realized that the independent artists, they still needed great distribution. They still needed great promotion, marketing. They needed expertise. They needed all that. Let's just call it what it is, and that's indie power. You know, you want to get your independent, you know, momentum going, and you need to think of that like just that, that, you know, you're empowering your career. You're not waiting for somebody else to pull you along or do all the work for you. You're just simply, we're here to magnify your vision and give you some of the tools that you wouldn't normally have or you couldn't afford people like myself full-time on your staff, but you might be able to get services from people that have the expertise you want. So I saw that pretty soon everybody was, in a sense, going to be running their own so-called indie label, even if it's just them making music, you know. But they're a company, and they're going to be, you know, um, signing up to CD Baby or, you know, or, or to InGrooves or to The Orchard or Spotify or whatever they're doing, um, it should be as an entity, you know, e even if it's just them. And naturally, they're going to be meeting other artists that maybe they can provide now a bridge for. You know, so Indie Power is basically just like a virtual major label of a menu of services. We're distributed through Universal and Sony. And, you know, you still want to look like a, a major, but you want to act and own like a, an indie. So you're essentially providing label services, but you're doing it before there was such a thing. Yeah, that's it. You, you need the consulting, you need the expertise. Some, somebody needs a small campaign or somebody comes in and they need a, a major campaign and they have a, a backer. You know, we're, we're scalable. Having worked on so many major label projects over the years, we know how to do it big and who to bring in, you know, if they want radio promotion. We can handle all that. You don't have to all of a sudden, as an artist, now act like, damn, I got I to gotta run all this business and be the artist and go tour. You know, it's just like streaming, like we talked about at NAM. You know, social media and streaming on it is really a full-time job if you're doing it in a big way. And there's no way you can be a full-time artist and a touring artist and a full-time social media expert and streaming promoter. You know, yeah, you can dip your toe in the pool, but you're going to need to add, you know, services to your team if you're able to and if you're really trying to do it in a bigger way. You know, the, the thought that Billie Eilish, you know, with this album she made in her bedroom with her brother could have done all that it did last night at the Grammys without some help is impossible. It was the same music. They made that music independently. But, you know, it helped to magnify their vision with Interscope and Universal. You know, before you mentioned marketing and promotion, how would you define the differences between those? Well, marketing is just the overall. That's publicity, advertising, all the different forms, you know, of promotion. 
you know, marketing is, is a much bigger, broader thing. You know, it, it's kind of like the difference between, you know, rapping and songwriting. You know, rapping is just a part of a song or a part of a show. You know, it's, it's, it's really songwriting and structure and chords and composition that is really the content that the publishing world or the streaming world deals with. So marketing is really the bigger, the bigger picture. You know, I, I, when, when you see a, a movie come out, like the new James Bond movie about to roll out, you know, that's a big marketing campaign. And portions of that might be publicity, advertising, outdoor advertising, online advertising, you know, uh, promotion to theaters, promotion to clubs and events and tie-ins to other corporate, you know, sponsors or product placement. You know, so marketing is the overall big picture. How do you feel about playlist promotion? I just think it's, it's only a part. It's a spoke in the wheel. And if you're going to put all your eggs in that basket, you know, you might sadly be mistaken. You, may, you, you might spend a lot of money, you're on a few playlists, and something may trickle in, you know. May, maybe something bigger might happen. Maybe it doesn't. I've known people that got on playlists and, still barely move the needle as far as income flow. So if that's all you're doing, I think it's a dangerous thing. But if, if you're able to do that as, as part of the mix, and that's one of the first things we do with a client is really figure out what is your budget, what you're trying to do, uh, what have you done so far, and we help assess what we think their strengths are. In other words, where is the path of least resistance to – hopefully penetrate and impact the marketplace. And if, if we think, you know, streaming is, is one of their end-all focus, then maybe put, you know, a, a portion of the budget towards that. But, you, you know, obviously these days the money's really made out touring, selling merchandising, you know, getting on festivals, getting endorsements based on the touring or sponsorships that you do. So I find it really hard to think of a successful career without the touring aspect. That being said, it takes a while before you can actually make money touring. It does, but there's, you know, there's micro touring, you know, you can do regional runs. You can be a support act on somebody's show and bring something to the table. You know, the thought that this act is going to bring you out and put you in front of their audience is, you know, unrealistic. But if you're bringing some social numbers or you're bringing some extra promotional power or your set really enhances their set, you know, maybe there's some cross services, maybe you can help run their merch booth, you know, um, while they're on stage. Any number of things, you know. Um, you just have to look, just like we said at NAM, going after sponsors, what are you bringing to the table? Are you just contacting them thinking they're going to give you a check? Or what are you presenting to them? which sounds like a good potential return on their investment. I noticed that over your career, you're somewhat of a specialist in breaking releases. Yeah, I, I, I found early on, you know, recognizing talent and getting the ball rolling was always my forte. What happened a lot, and a lot of these artists were independent, you know, when I started pushing them, at the trajectory of an artist when they get upstream to a bigger major, a lot of times that major cuts off all their lifelines of who was promoting them, even sometimes their management, you know, oh, you need to get this, you need to get that, we need to get your new agent, we need to 
we're going to do all the promotion in-house. So unfortunately, you know, um, and you see groups suffer because of it. You know, what, what team helped break the act now may not be around, you know, in the second or third release. And I think a lot of acts now see that and an advantage of being independent. It's like, we don't mind the majors doing what they do, but we always want to handle some of our own promotion because <laughs> the team to help get us here is very important. We don't want to lose that. Who knows? We might get dropped by a major in a year or maybe choose to get out of our, you know, agreement with the major, you know, as soon as we can. That way the home team is the best team, you know, and, and you see that time and time again. I remember Bad Religion making all those independent records and then, Atlantic picking them up for a record and realizing that we really don't know how to work this. Yeah, we can take it to radio, but what else? You know, and then, and then of course, Bad Religion closely, you know, related to the Epitaph label. They're like, well, let's just go back indie. You know, we really, you know, let's make an amicable split here. You know, we can stay good, good friends with you guys, but, you know, what we do is a little different. We're not, we're not, you know, dependent on selling millions of albums. We can, we can be hugely successful with 50 to hundred, 200,000, you know, units moved. Now that being said, it's a different world when we're not talking physical product or we're talking very little physical product. So what would denote a success? Well, I think with a lot of these indie bands that tour, they still are selling physical. They have vinyl CDs and DVDs in their, booth with their t-shirts and caps and hoodies and everything. Um, but obviously streaming, they're going to push what they can. I think they're re realistically looking at touring being the number one income source um, and streaming and sales as being almost a combined source that they hope that they're going to generate, you know, revenue from the consumption of their music. So some of them, you know, just really see that as a combined revenue stream. And some acts move more physical than others. Um, physical is definitely a great thing to have at shows that people want to get signed and autographed and feel like they have something tangible, you know, in their hands and connected to the act. You know, they may stream for convenience, but, you know, a lot of their fans will purchase and stream. So, you know, I, I think the streaming, you know, in a lot of cases, unless you're a superstar, is really kind of a wild card. You really don't know used to know if you moved 1,000 CDs or 50,000 or 100,000 what that was going to net you. And certainly the publishers knew what that was going to net through their mechanicals. But, but now it's really kind of a, a, a big question mark. So, you know, looking at the consumption through streaming and sales as one revenue stream and then touring and merch as another, um, as long as they're, you know, making far and above what it's costing them to be in business and be on the road, they're successful. As long as they don't have to get day jobs, you know, which is virtually impossible when you're touring, you know, um, they're, they're successful in a lot of ways. I think a lot of independent artists look at that as a level of success. If they can do this 100% and not have to um, depend on, you know, a day job um, or maybe have a flexible day job when they're not on tour to supplement their income. You know, you just mentioned about not knowing what you're going to get off of a thousand streams. One of the presentations I did at NAM was all on that. It was the ins and outs of streaming royalties and covering that and all the variables that go into it. And every time I give that particular presentation, 
there's always like big eyes in the room because they go, wow, I didn't realize that. And wow, you mean that can happen? And no wonder why no one can figure this out or no one knows for sure what they're going to make or why you can have two artists with exactly the same number of streams and yet they're making, you know, substantially different amounts of royalties. Well, that's, that's certainly, like we say, there's an art to everything. It's not like there's an art to writing a song or putting on a great live show. There's an art to understanding streaming, understanding, you know, the, the tour regimen so you don't uh, blow yourself out or run out of steam. Or, you know, an, an art to dealing with the fans, you know, building those uh, communities and bridges. So, yeah, no, it's, it's fascinating um, trying to master the art of streaming revenue. I find it being one of the most mysterious areas. Like I say, coming from the physical world, you know, you can pretty much gauge, you know, what, what, what's coming in. Uh, but there are a lot of variables in the streaming world. I noticed that you have a lot of clients that are, that represent different genres. Yeah. That being said, many times you'll find a company like yours that will specialize in one particular genre because they're really good at it and they, they really know how to do that. But you do it across genres. So what would be the difference and what's the similarities between campaigns? Well, the similarities is really you're, you're uh, developing the artist, the market, the, the streams, the sales, the um, tour potential. The difference is, is when it gets into radio and media. You know, hip-hop is obviously different than alternative rock, which is different than country and different than top 40 radio. But, you know, there are some even similarities to, to that. You see these hybrid artists. I mean, country is more rock and pop than ever, you know. So there are similarities. But, you know, the, the age-old building an artist, building a fan base, and all that is very similar. Where it gets specific is if one is able to run a radio campaign or, you know, that's where the specialists really get involved. A publicist who just deals with urban or just deals with hip-hop, you know, they have their contacts. And they may know no one in the country world or very few people in the rock world, you know. So that, that's a difference. You know, you look at a show like last night, the Grammys, it's every genre. But, you know, the BET Awards coming up in June is very specific. It's all urban. It's, it's hip-hop and R&B. So, you know, that's, that's where it gets different. But, you know, building a fan base, building out an artist, songwriting, you know, all, all of the elements of the ammunition you need to go into battle with are very similar. And, and to me, I came out of what I call growing up with rock, pop, and soul. I mean, I loved the British Invasion. I loved Motown. I loved the soulful music and i and i always gravitated to the soulful singers in rock the robert plants the rod stewards the roger daltrey you know the the people that really sang with a lot of soul and so to me there was very little difference between black and white music you know soul rock pop music it was all very similar you know and a lot of people don't realize that hip-hop was actually born out of alternative music a lot of people assume today it was born out of black music, but R&B music hated hip-hop. You know, when Grandmaster Flash and Run DMC and the Beastie Boys came in, R&B radio, R&B, and soul executives hated it. They, they saw it as a threat to R&B, which it obviously became, because it 
it, uh, it gave the, the youth something more exciting. You want to watch these R&B crooners, or do you want to see this wild hip-hop group, you know, blow the stage up, you know? So it, it really was born out of alternative. I helped launch The Clash's first shows in America, and The Clash did a 10-concert a run in New York, and their opening act was Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. They were the first rock band to embrace hip-hop and reggae and dub music. And it, it really, hip-hop had more to do with punk rock and alternative than it ever did, even though they sampled funk music and some soul music. It really wasn't born out of that. They weren't singers. They didn't even consider themselves songwriters. They're making beats. They're... They're, they're, you know, rapping, toasting their, their vocals over these beats. So, you know, th- there was a lot more uh, similarity with, with hip-hop and alternative music than a lot of people know. That's why today, you, 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 of course, we saw the rap rock bands, the Limp Biscuits and the Papa Roaches and everybody came in. These were people that grew up with hip-hop, but they love rock. So they combined turntables and guitars. So it's it's really more of a um, common ground than ever. And like I say, new country is really has more to do with rock and roll and even pop songwriting than it does with traditional country. You know, a Chris Stapleton or something like that will stand out, but most of the country out there is is really is really rock music. I mean, they're they're steeped on Leonard Skinner and Bon Jovi and the Eagles more than they are Porter Wagner and. Dolly Parton. Look into your crystal ball for a second and tell me where you think the business is going. Well, I think it's, it's getting to be more of a multifaceted industry. You know, we, we're, we're seeing artists become entrepreneurs more and more. And they're, they're really working on their own, own rules. You know, of course, you can start a clothing line. That's been pretty common. But you're seeing more and more of them. They're starting a CBD line. They're starting a cannabis line. They're, they're starting some other um, industry. They're starting a coffee line. You know, they're, they're doing something else that's more lifestyle. So maybe where they did T-shirts and caps now, maybe they're doing a full fashion line or a full lifestyle line of lamps and home decor. I mean, we're seeing artists that are really becoming more and more entrepreneurs and they're able to really um, bring a smaller audience to a wider, um, you know, product base. You know, they have super fans, and some artists can exist with a, just a few thousand fans. If, they, if their fans are consuming, you know, multiple products or services from them, you know, it's more of a lifestyle. We saw, we saw an alternative music, like, um, we saw it with the Grateful Dead, obviously, but then you saw bands like Fish and 311 and Dave Matthews, and they formed these like communities, you know, with their with their audiences, where 311 would find 311 Day, and they'd go to the Bahamas on a cruise, and we're seeing cruises, you know, with more and more bands or genres related. So I just think that um, it's not just about the music. The music is the beginning. But where it goes from there is really anybody's guess. You know, I always say as long as it's legal and profitable, it's good. You know, it's good business because they know their audience 
pretty well, you know, and we obviously saw it breaking Snoop Dogg, you know. He, he had his niche, and Snoop really hasn't had a hit in 20, 25 years, but he's, he's a bigger icon today around the world. He's a household name than ever before because of all his niche things and everything, the lifestyle around him. If I'm an indie artist and I come to you, money aside, and I want your help, are there certain things that you would require before you would help me? Well, you've got to have some good content and you have to have a good work ethic because this is not an easy business. Like, like we tell people, you know, it's, we use some professional sports analogies. We use some military analogies. You're going into war. You're running for president. You're trying to win the Super Bowl. None of that stuff is easy. So you have to love what you do and be tirelessly on it, whether it be writing songs or doing shows or coming up with ideas or communicating with your fan base or, you know, growing relationships with other artists, which could boom into, you know, tour packages and relationships, you know, and things like that. Uh, through the Warp Tour, we really saw the importance of developing relationships with other acts. Now that the Warp Tour is gone, a lot of these acts are now kind of forming their own tour packages. It's like, man, you know, we know we, we know we got the same audience. Why don't we put about three or four of these acts and then find a hot new opener to come out, and we'll all co-headline, and we'll coexist, and we'll support each other, you know, on this show. So it's a great package for the fans. And it's from the indie, you know, warp tour, you know, attitude. But you know, we're we're creating our own our own stream. You know, we're we're in control of this, you know, revenue that we're generating. So I just see, you know, more and more potentials, and that's what we really look for in a client is they have to be proactive, they have to have good content, they have to be forward thinking, but more importantly than ever, they have to be ready to. Um, sacrifice a lot. Going on, on the road, especially early on, is not glamorous. It might not even be profitable, but it's a must to try and get to the next level of touring, which could be profitable. I, you know, I, I, I don't find any levels of touring necessarily glamorous, you know, unless you're in private jets and four-star hotels and all that, but e- even then, you know, the grind of day-to-day, it's not really that glamorous. It's even the, the award shows. A lot of people think the Grammys and all that is what the music business is about. Well, you and I both know that, that that's not even 1% of the business. You know, you put on a tuxedo one night a year and go out and clink some champagne glasses. That's not really the industry, you know. Um, so, you know, wise people um, always told me, you know, be about the rewards. Don't worry about the awards, you know. Figure out where you can earn a living at what you love to do and surround yourself with like-minded people, like-minded artists, like-minded, you know, companies out there. You know, it's a lot easier to find sponsors if the three, four acts on the bill have a common, you know, fashion sense. You know, they all might be, you know, skateboarders, you know. So some of these extreme sports, you know, um, wear companies or products, you know, might be a perfect sponsorship. So you really have to think outside the box. You, you know, it's, it's, you're not going to get McDonald's and Coke to sponsor your tour, you know. I even see the stadium tour with my friends Green Day and Fallout Boy and, and, and um, Weezer going out, 
and Harley-Davidson is their sponsor. Harley-Davidson is obviously dependent on reaching a younger audience that is going to buy Harleys because the older guys, you know, they're, they're going to pass away pretty soon. They're, they're going to just keep the Harley they're riding on. But the, the, the young 20, 30-year-olds, they have got to start buying Harleys for Harley-Davidson to continue to be a company. Last question, Jay. What is the best business advice that maybe you've learned along the way or maybe someone imparted to you? Well, that's vast, and that's why we do the Indie Summit, you know, every August, because it is so vast. But I would say be as unique as possible. You know, you don't want to follow trends. You want to be out there, you know, as individual, as unique as possible. But you, you also need to, you know, bring it. Like I say, it's a 24-7, 365 world, especially in the indie world. You know, we don't clock in and clock out. It's, it's not seasonal. It is, you know, all day, every day. So you really got to love what you do. This is not work. If you think this is work, this is not the right industry for you. But if you love what you do, just like Kobe Bryant loved basketball, you will do it tirelessly. You will do it to the end of the time, you know, and it will show that you're great at what you do, and you're naturally going to attract business people, you know, around that. So it's the work ethic, it's the high output of creativity, and it's the uniqueness of the creativity in the live show and the merch that's really going to create your brand in your lane. You can find out more about Jay at IndiePower.com. IndiePower, I-N-D-I-E, Power, P-O-W-E-R, all one word, dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. To listen to episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyownercircle.com, or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.